This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studio, looking out onto the famed Locust Walk on a gorgeous, picture-perfect, almost feels like fall, summer morning this July. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew, all four guys, all four collaborators, all four creators of Wharton Moneyball are here. Shane Jensen to my right. Eric Bradley to my left and Audie Weiner straight away. Good morning, gents. Good morning. Good morning. How are you Indeed. doing? Doing great. Glad to be back. Been a while. Been a while for me. Been a while, a less while for Shane and been a long while since we've all been here. But we will be here for the next two hours. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. You can join us. We wish you would. Give us a shout. one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two. 7866. You can also email us if that's your preferred mode of communication. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can email us during the show. We have responded live real time to email. It's a great way to reach us if you're hearing sometime when we're not live. If it's not 8 to 10 Eastern, you're listening to a replay one of the four or five times over the next week. We are replayed. You can still email us. Follow us on Twitter. Pay attention on Twitter. Read us on Twitter at WMoneyBall is the handle up there, at WMoneyBall. Great way to reach out. Great way to send us a question. Great way to give us material for the over-under segment at the end of the show. We will be doing that today. We follow all our guests up there on on, on, on the Twitter. You, you can you can stay in touch with the sports analytics world via, via the people we have on the show. We're going to have a couple of guests later today. We have we Chris, Chris Alexopoulos. One what of sport my, is that? That's soccer. We yeah, got man. Some soccer to talk about. Going to debrief. Going to debrief the World Cup. Following Chris at the top of the next hour, we have Michael Fishman. Michael is a VP, I believe, with Fish. the Yankees. He's, he is not. He's not messing around, man. He's working for a club. Going to tell us some things about baseball. Between now and then, open lines. Very curious what you guys have been thinking about. What has caught your eye around the world of sports? Well, a lot's caught my eye, but thanks to our producer, Matt Dat, something caught my eye on a piece of paper he just put in front of us. So I'm going to give you guys $100 to bet. I'm going to give oh, it to you. Sweet. I'm going to give it to you. He's giving us money. I'm Eric giving Bradley. it to you. Thank you. And you have one each? of... Do we each get 100 Let's say you each get 100 That's 300 and you have, you, Right. That's fine. And you <laughs> oh each have... And this is truly an and analytics And you can pick one of... Don't look down at the piece of paper. Maybe you don't have it, the map put in front of you. You have one of three bets you can make. Okay? You can have the Patriots to win the Super Bowl. Yuck. Okay. You can have the Boston Celtics to win the NBA title, mm. or you can have the Yankees to win the World Series. Now, there's a reason I'm asking you about these three. I'll tell you why in a second. You can have, again, the Patriots to win the NFL title. You can have the Celtics to win the NBA title, or you can have the Yankees to win the World Series. Which of the One three of these are you things taking? One is not like the other. Well, Patriots. You're taking the Patriots. Okay? Yeah, it's Adi, pretty obvious. That's Shane Jensen. I, Patriots Adi are probably, okay, you're going to make me think. Patriots are probably around 12%. I'm not looking. The Yankees would they're, have to get through. I bet they're through. higher than that on the market. 
What's that? I bet they're you'd be higher than that, but I think so. You're going to you think legitimately. I'm taking legitimately twelve. I think the Yankees are probably in that range. Um, It's hard to imagine they're higher. There's about there's going to be eight teams, you know, more that go. So I'd say the Yankees are probably slightly less. I hate to say that. Ah, breaks my heart to say that they're less. (laughs) And the Celtics, they've got to be way less. No, Celtics are a lot like the others. So 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 way less. So so I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with. uh, Do I have to pick one? Patriots. Okay, okay. I'm going a hard pass on the Celtics, but otherwise. I don't care that much between the other two. I'll go to the Yankees just to you know, jump just in to on be the different. baseball side. Okay, the thing that surprised me, and this is maybe what Adi was trying to do as well, they're all essentially the same odds. Hmm. Now, I find that, I mean, to be exact, by the way, the Patriots are the longest of them. The Patriots are plus 600. Mm-hmm. The Celtics yeah. are plus 600. And the Yankees are plus 550. Hey. So well, those don't the seem market. the same. T- no, I'm saying those are the betting okay, odds the betting right odds. now. Okay. Those don't seem... The same yeah. to me. Wait, I know. And it, one, well, I think the what's Celtics, intri- real I, I think, quickly, the Celtics, yeah. there's no competition in the East. Well, now, that's the so thing. is The Celtics ah, are this right, weird right. bet, right? Where that's it's, right. Uh, the Celtics are this weird bet where one would say they're not exactly guaranteed to make the finals in the That's my, East, minus 125, be, by the way. But would it, I, well, I, I would put them the at like 80% to make the finals in the East and at 0% to win once they made the finals. Just, well, what's interesting is, by the way, I don't know if uh, we, all I, saw, just one second, we all saw the series between the, I think we did, between the Warriors and the Rockets last year. Does it surprise you that the Warriors are twice as likely, in the betting odds, to make the finals as the Celtics? The Warriors are twice as likely to make it. To They're make minus the two twenty-five yeah, to win me. the West, and the Celtics are minus one twenty-five to win the East. That's not exactly yeah. two to one, but that's shocking to me. It is shocking. The Warriors are minus two twenty-five to win the West, and the Celtics are I, minus one twenty-five to win the yeah, East. Yeah, I would, I would have assumed the Celtics were the highest probability team to make the finals. They're not. Just Let me do a quick public service. If you're, if you're listening and you want yeah. to turn that into a probability, when someone says. Plus 500, that means one over six is their probability. One over five plus one, 100. which is one over six. So that's roughly in your 16% and that's where, range. That's, that's where you saying, were. And yeah. the Yankees, now, it's plus 600, you're 14%. Now, the, one of the reasons why the betting odds are a little shifted from what we would consider to be the actual or the true odds have to do with betting proportions. And um, and the public does what the public does. The, the, the bookies try to balance in some degree, but they also take positions. So they do a little bit of both. So it's kind of hard to figure out exactly what's happening. I mean, what do you think about the Patriots? Would you think that... One, what is it? One in seven is about the right probability. Yeah, I mean, I think you know it's 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 probably between them and I mean, I, I put a very high probability of them winning the division and making the playoffs. Yeah. Um, I okay, so that I makes them one only, of the final eight teams. That makes them right. in the final eight, no matter what. Um, and I think there's only like two or maybe two or three teams that I think legitimately will beat will, could beat them in in on their side of the. Uh, in the AFC. Okay, so let's say they have a one-third chance then of making the Super Bowl. And, then and a 50%, 50% chance of yeah. winning that game, so one in six. Yeah. I'll give, you, I'll give you a different logic for answering. If I'm going to go back and answer Bradlow's question again from scratch, I would say the following two things. I would have inferred something about his motivation, which should have been. Ah, these are probably strategy. Well, there's two oh. considerations here. Two considerations. One is, these are probably, if he's asking us this, he it's thinks a, it's hard, which means they're probably relatively even. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if I'm going to I, the, two of these things, one of these things is not like the other in a yeah. different sense. Two of them are going to be inflated because it's the Yankees and it's the Patriots. Mm-hmm. And right. I would short both of those if there were efficient markets to short them in. Celtics don't face that. In fact, if anything, they're going to be underappreciated because of the same things that we did, which is no way. Actually, so, well, so well, I'm going to go back and say, 
I'm going to take the Celtics just because I think they're probably the least efficient number on the board. What actually motivated this was actually a conversation. Adi and I violated our rules and we're having off air. You were talking about soccer versus basketball versus NFL. Which one has, in some sense, the most inherent variability? And that's why I was asking you these three. Like, these don't seem to have the same amount of uncertainty. Like, no, what I mean by yeah. that, even if the point estimate is the same, in other words, they're all plus. I think we'd all say the Patriots have the most certainty of these three. Of, the, of, no, well, of I, well, these well, three to make to win. In other words, it's not yeah, because just they're my, the lowest variance. Around the the lowest variance. Well, I don't. I think basketball is the lowest variance, though. I mean, I mean, again, we we have high uncertainty. Well, I gave, you the, Celt- agree, I gave you the Celtics. The Celtics I gave last. you the Celtics. I gave yeah. you the Celtics. I didn't give you the Warriors to win the title. He's answering the no, question. No, but I'm saying that certainty. I mean, I can say with almost certainty that the Celtics are going to be in the NBA Finals next year unless something dramatically happens in in the And I can say with yes. almost certainty that then once, once there, they will lose the finals. So, okay, is, would anybody bet against me on those two statements? Well, yes, oh, I, I, I might. Sure. And what odds? Right odds. Well, okay. <laughs> I mean, when I say okay, ninety percent chance of them making the finals, ten oh, percent chance of them winning. I would take nine to one. So I'll take the Sixers. I'll yeah, take the Sixers yeah, sure. at nine the to Raptors. one. At nine, There's some well, good teams. I don't know if you guys saw, but the Rockets are excellent. They can knock out the Rockets. Are not a contender in the East. There's something. No, else. no, but in the final, you wanted for the finals. Yes. So if the Golden State Warriors aren't going to make it, Eric, they ain't going to win. Eric has a trade up. Well, date. yes, but the yeah. Ra- any team that comes out of the West beats the Celtics. Eric has a trade update that might change the numbers. I mean, I'm just saying. So, Trade update. Well, the oh, Toronto right. Raptors were the number one team rate, ranked in the East last year. They did win the most games. We know what the regular season might be worth, but they did win the most. One could argue they've just improved their team. So they're um, they're going to be acquiring Kawhi Leonard. That was just announced last oh, night. Well, that is. He, now, he's being tra- now, DeMar DeRozan is part of that trade. That's a trade. big trade. But that's a big trade. So now, all of a sudden, are you as confident? No, that's oh, true. They also have a new coach. Yeah. And I think there was some dissatisfaction with the way he with the way he ran the team. But I have to admit, it made me also think of the inconsistency in trades, and that's why I'm glad we have Cade Massey here. So let's remember the trade the Sixers made at the beginning of last year. They, Which was that? They traded the number three pick and an unprotected number one pick for the rap from the Kings to move up to the number one pick in the draft. Oh, they God. picked Markel Fultz. Yeah. The Celtics at number three got the guy they wanted anyway, which was Jalen Brown. Now. Who would you rather have? It wasn't Jalen Brown. It was the... Oh, Sorry, was, Jason Tatum. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry, Jason you're, Tatum. Uh, Thanks, you're, Matt. You're, you're, I'm, behind. You're, you're behind. Jason Tatum. Thank you. That good. Hey, Matt's hey. listening. Jason Tatum. Um, so who would you rather have right now, Kawhi Leonard or Jason Tatum? Tatum. You'd rather have Tatum the, than Kawhi really, Leonard? I'd, I'd rather have his rights for the next few years. How old is Leonard? 26. Leonard's only 26. That 26. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, Leonard's And he's unproven. So let's. Well, so he's had some but here was my Here was my point. Here was my point in making this. The Sixers, when they were trying to get Kawhi Leonard, said Markel Fultz is not available. Now, if I told you you could trade Markel Fultz and any unprotected pick the Sixers have right now for Kawhi Leonard, well, would you do it? It's Leonard for a year, though. It's like a rental, right? He's only got a year left on his. That's contract. absolutely true. Mm-hmm. You got to hope that you know he wants the extra fifty million dollars and sign with you as opposed to somebody yeah. else because he yeah. can get a hundred and ninety million for whatever team he signs oh from, God. and only a hundred and forty million. That, so maybe the 50, maybe he's got Lakers. fifty million reasons. Well, maybe he's going to go to the Raptors for one year and then go over to the Lakers, but the Lakers can only offer him. Four years and one forty, as opposed to five years and one ninety. But yeah. he may He'll choose to it. do it. He'll take it. But I just thought to play with LeBron yeah. is worth forty million. Yep. Yeah, I mean, yeah. A call, easily I mean, worth forty million. You know, million. we're two or three years away from them. Like they're assembling the super team. 
over Great. there to try and Great. challenge. Great. I just thought either way. I just thought the trade might change Shane Jensen's belief about you say the that Celtics. Enthusiastically, this is how basketball apparently has worked since you, you know, time immemorial. But. Well, I, at least for the last. Ten years. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't always the case, but this is one of the reasons basketball is not as interesting anymore. It's a beautiful yeah. game, but it's a little bit ridiculous the, the way that. By the way, I think I have a confession. I realized this morning I have a confession. I think, I think I have a new second favorite sport. Oh, oh, wait! It's football, then college football. No, college football, then football. <laughs> well, I'm going to lump football together. together. I'm lumping footballs together, though. Clearly, you I are. Would, You're I, willing to make that distinction. No, that's a, that's an innovation. No, for I'm you. just pros getting a free ride on my college football love. Okay, but I have a new second favorite sport. It's pretty clear. Mm, it's pretty clear. Soccer? <laughs> Soccer, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I mean, oh, one football exactly. to the next. Real, real clever. That was the nice drum roll. <laughs> Thank you, Danielle. Thank you, Danielle Bruno, back on the board. Good to see you. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to go soccer. You I'm, can I'm, soccer. I, I, have a, I have a new love. I've been won over. So what? I, I, what halfway through my life, I've yeah. decided soccer. Because it's the analytics of soccer that no, is so intriguing to no, you. No, no. I do think the analytics are exciting. Because the unpredictability. It's so open. It's so right. open no one knows how to do it, right? The, what is it, guys? I mean, were you not – are you not newly enamored of soccer? I, no, I mean, I, I get into – I mean, we'll uh, – I get into it every World Cup. We'll see if it, I sort of can maintain really? that into the it's league the sort level? of schedule. This is the same level for you because this is definitely a yeah. Level. No, I so mean, so it was, it was an unbelievably Kate, exciting World Kate, Cup. Kate, explain to us what about this World well, Cup got you going. Let me just. I, I'm, I'm good question. I'm curious about y'all's so as well. But I'll just say ten seconds. It's the same reason I've appreciated hockey more as I've gotten older. The play away from the ball when hockey, the puck, now enamors me. Like I, I'm, when I, I'm so used to sports where I'm focusing just on the. Mm-hmm. Quarterback snapping the ball, the baseball, baseball hitter, baseball the pitcher hitter. But in soccer and in hockey, as I'm watching a game, I'm actually spending as much of my eyeball time looking at what people are doing away from the ball. Just like in hockey, when I go yeah. to a game now, I'm amazed at people that can move without the puck and people that are. That's the part of the sport that has given me a much greater appreciation for both of those sports mm-hmm. in an equal way. Mm-hmm. And just, just the unpre- for me, I, I think the unpredictability of it. I, I think you know this, this tournament was helpful. This tournament was especially unpredictable. I think by World Cup standards, I don't know if people have done analyses. I feel like that's a well, that's what seems that's to be the a, results that's a indicate five thirty eight out of the box analysis right there. Yep. But um, but I, I think the unpredictability of it is, is is fantastic. You've got surprise teams. You've got teams that even when you've got you know like some kind of mismatch, you know. The, the underdog, but wins. isn't it just isn't it just a? I mean, you're you're you've been the sound the voice of reason on our show for yeah. the last four years about coin flips. Yeah, isn't it just that there's less coin flips in soccer? There just is. There's just less opportunities to score. Oh, just because and like each each, yeah. co- each knockout is like a single Rose, game. No, no, no. I wasn't even referring to that. I was talking with, about within a game. Oh, just each team, a, a great team, may yeah. end up with a half. A dozen really good opportunities to score. Yeah, that's Maybe right. the other one has three, but three coin flips can still beat six coin yeah. flips. Well, consider no, the that final. Is, that, that's a good way of summarizing right. it within a game as within well. Within a game. Yeah. So you are rigid converging on the issue which enamors us all the time, which is how can we can't predict it. But I wanted to ask the question of you, Kate, of why you like it. But I'm going to start off from the reason why I, th- why I don't yet like it or appreciate ah, it. Okay. No. And that's because I've never really played it, I and I don't understand I it. So I can understand shots on the goal. That, that's where the <laughs> ball is. I'm just with you, Eric. I find that interesting and fun. But I don't appreciate anything. I know. And in fact, we had it while you guys were absent. We did interview a, a soccer uh, expert from Northwestern who, who builds models for predicting 
evaluating the value of players. Yeah. And and we talked and about a particular shot in the um in, in the in the World Cup early with Argentina where there was some great pass to Messi and he did something and yeah. he scored, right? Yeah. And, I, and everybody was just blown away by yeah. this. And I watched it and I and I saw it, a pass goal. I'm like, that's nice. <laughs> but I didn't see anything. And we he, he explained to us what was actually happening and, and and he described it from the point of view of a lifetime of not only watching but also playing yeah. and can understand the difficulty of controlling a ball shot at 40 yards at, at right. 60 miles per hour ever how hard they kick it it's, and it's, I just didn't not, get it it's not surely they don't the ball doesn't oh, arrive. You know, I don't it doesn't know. arrive at 60 miles no it doesn't arrive at 60 but it probably arrives at mid I mean it's, I mean that's a good question how hard do they kick the soccer ball it's got to be pretty hard this is, we'll just leave this to our. But to regardless, our, similar to you, I didn't play hockey as a child. I didn't play soccer as a child. I played baseball, basketball, football, tennis. That's why you know yeah. maybe I. It's I can't. But well, so what? The most obvious reason is that the the play has changed some. They've got the the, the counterattack style that is that is shown dominant to the historic historically at least recently these teams that they, they, they just so many passes ball control it's all about possession the 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 spanish teams were like this they got it from brazil germany was very successful this way they would they would be on the ball 58 60% of the time for the game lots of passes and they would just kind of wear down the other side and these other teams have said well now we we can only counter that by having a strong counter attack and we don't have to be as talented because it just takes a few breakouts to do this. And if they've got all their guys forward, then we're going to have these openings. And now we have this style of play. Like Belgium's counter was just uh, – and it's yeah. so exciting. But you just it's said really something. Exciting. The weight – but also what makes it extra exciting, let me just take, you know, looking at one step ahead thinking. The reason a team will have a great counterattack is in some sense you've intentionally or not let the other team come down the field. That's right. And so that means they have a chance to score. And then if you stop them, then you go down the field. And that's what I noticed more so in this World Cup than any others. That even when a team fell behind, it wasn't like, oh, my God, the game's over. Like yeah. normally the one – you know why? Because they would let the other team and draw them down the field for the opportunity for the counterattack. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that, and that I thought that was really a, sh- a shift okay, in so the style of play. So let me ask play. you a question. In the semifinals, when England was up one to nothing, my old way of thinking was like, okay, game's over. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> one nothing. Right. Yeah, that didn't they, happen. They were up yeah. at like four, four minutes into the game. Yeah. So three and, minutes into the game. And then it lasted for over half the game. Yeah. And so what happened? What was I missing? I mean, all of a sudden, you know, Croatia scored, I guess. Uh, that happened. Well, that is what you missed, I guess. <laughs> I know I saw that, the but. score, but I wasn't watching, and I didn't see anything happening to notice all during that time that England had the lead. That was in before they scored. You oh, you didn't see. I mean, the entire second half, Croatia was no, really Croatia, offensive. Yeah, I, I mean, like that, I mean, that I, I noticed. I watch enough to notice when teams are actually pressing. You know, like are, are sitting back versus actually being aggressive. And Croatia was an incredibly aggressive team in all the games exactly. I saw play. They I mean, were they, super they, exciting. They carried and, play. So and the first I mean, maybe what's happened? This would be a great thing to talk we have a guest talking about soccer today maybe what's happened is that the offense has in some sense improved at a faster rate than defense in soccer it's one observation it's one tournament with 64 games in it but maybe there's a value now in being more offensive minded than there is being defensive minded that's one possibility you possibility? look you study these he's, types of pair comparison saying... models there's, in football there's an offensive and defensive strength parameter let's imagine someone fit models to these data i would be interested to see which ones change the most well, over time typically typically they they oscillate back and forth right in all the sports we see this we see this this it's never quite an equilibrium one side will get ahead and then some innovation will help the other side catch up. The other thing that I've really been enjoying about soccer lately is just the structure of the sport. This club country 
They, oh, yeah. yeah. And they play for country and World Cup, but then they're all affiliated with different clubs, and they go back and play for the clubs, and then they're all... The, yeah, soccer does this better neat. than any other. I wish, really we could, I wish we could do this with, like, you know, basketball. Why don't we have... Why There is a World Cup of basketball. Did you guys know this? Yeah, yeah. Why don't we hear about this? Why isn't this big? <laughs> yeah, it could Because, be. I mean, you know, America obviously would be... I don't... Th- I, it, I think it would be exciting... Competition. I mean, it probably is an exciting competition. We just don't hear about it. Can I just tie together our first two topics, Kate, on something you just said? If you think about the way you – we had been talking about the NBA. We talked about soccer. You mentioned that the offense and defense go back and forth. If you think about what the Lakers have just said when they got LeBron, then they got Rajon Rondo, they got Lance Stevenson, they're going to try to fight them with defense, not offense. Their comment was – so when you made that comment about offense and defense oscillate – LeBron and the Lakers have come out and say, we know you cannot beat this Warriors team on offense. So let's shift back to the you know the old days, the 90s, where you won on defense. And so your comment tied together. I think in basketball, everyone has been chasing the offense of the Warriors. You can't beat them at that game. So I'm interested to see how the NBA evolves over the next two or three years. Well, it's one of the reasons the Thunder got hurt, I believe. They had this one guy whose name I forget who's a phenomenal defensive player, one of the best in the league, but he couldn't score at all. And then he got hurt. And they just couldn't – they couldn't they, – they had a chance to hang with these teams defensively when he was there. And then when he got knocked out of the season, it fell back. This is Warden Moneyball. We're going to be here for the next hour and a half now. You can join the conversation. one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four. Nine four two seventy eight sixty six. have the whole crew in here this morning. So you mentioned a defensive value in, in basketball. We talked about it in soccer. My open question to you guys is how do you measure defense? What's the best way to measure defense in, say, basketball or even soccer? Well, def- how do you do it? I mean, I know how to measure ba- offense. Is well, it through? There, there are standard analytics numbers now in basketball, just efficiency numbers. And, yeah. they, and teams have these numbers for both offense and defensive. So basically it's a points per possession. Well, that's more the or team less. on the team level, yes, of course. Correct. But how do you do this? On, when you're talking about assembling a team that is excellent in defense, how well, do we know these well, guys are good so at I'm defense? Just, I, I don't know. I sort of know. I don't know the answer, but let me give you, you mean one. Analytically. Yeah, yeah. Well, Let sure. me give you one way you could do it. So um, let's take a given player. And let's say a given player during the season covers 50 different players. I'm just making that up. But let's say there's 29 other teams roughly. And that each night, let's say it's 58. Every, every night they cover one of two players on another team. I could look at the field goal percentage for that player when I'm covering them versus the control group of every other player covering them. I could add, I could multiply that by the number of possessions, multiply it by the loss in number of points, and I've got some points advantage. So I know it's not experimental data. I'm but not randomly it, is it, is assigning this, first it. First of all, is it collected? You know who's covering who? Yeah. Yes, you do. Oh, yeah. you do. And not only that, other data which would allow you to go one level below that would be they actually now know even the distance that if I'm covering Adi Weiner, they know I'm two feet away from you versus Shane Jensen, so they can even control for the difficulty of the shot taken. But that's how I would do it. I would compare, let's even just say, simple metric. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's saved. Point saved. And I mean, like, I think the more complicated version of this that'll probably be out in like five years is kind of space, how much space you constrained or something like that. So, I mean, but I I think that kind of point saved statistic is what people do potentially. I know that soccer, the basketball has hired a lot of people to do this because it's it's very complex data, the spatial data, and it's not easy. It's not you can, but even the non spatial stuff is. 
you know, you can you do know pretty who's easily. covering yeah. who. Yeah, I mean, definitely. you can go even simpler than that. You can do kind of a plus minus. You take these yeah. defensive ratings, and then you know who's on the court, and yeah. you can start. I, I think this is where they come up with defensive win shares. So you've got some way of just parceling it out, just because it's they're on the court. It's yeah. harder in soccer because you just don't have as many outcomes. To yeah, like kind the of only measure. reason I'd like to do it covering people is that you know. The reason Michael Jordan was not only the greatest offensive player, we can argue, but maybe one of the greatest, people would argue the greatest defensive player is, he's always covering the best player on the other team. So that's why, too. Yeah. You know, it's who you're covering matters, not just I was on yeah. the court. That starts pointing out the limitations of these analytics. It's great. These things are not given. These are not exogenous, as the economists would say. All right, we have a phone call. Jordan from North Carolina. Morning, Jordan. Welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Going real fine. What can we do for you this morning? Um, so I have uh, I have a, a dynasty league for my fantasy football, and um, I have a bunch of quarterbacks. I'm, I'm looking to trade some of them. Uh, what I want to know is what would you guys say is the best way, or is there a way to analyze um, offensive lines in the NFL? And if so, how do you find individual value um, for offensive linemen? How do we find individual value for That's a great lines? question. Because, I mean, like that, is, that, to a certain extent, we've been talking about trying to partial out, like, the individual contributions of different players defensively or offensively on, in basketball, soccer, Same question, whatever. Just, just but, this, but I think it's one of the hardest versions of this question because the offensive line really does, you know, by its very essence, have to play sort of as a unit. I do know that they do kind of look at. Essentially, matchups type stuff as well. Like like Pro Football Focus does their ratings. Yeah, Pro Football well, Focus. I've looked at those a little bit. That's getting into the individual. Let's first ask the what is the best way if you have to draft an offensive line in fantasy football? I assume oh, like as an entire as unit. And they're scoring. What is the scoring rule typically for an offensive line in fantasy? I don't even, I don't even know. I've never played uh, fantasy. Jordan, league. are you still there? What, how, when does an offensive line get points in fantasy football? What's the scoring rule for an offensive line? Well, that's the thing. I, I'm not sure. Ah. Um, I didn't know they could. I didn't know they had that um, yeah. available to where you could okay, let, use an offensive line. Let's assume that it's around quarterback protection, and and even if it's not, that may be a reasonable question to ask. Let's now let's ask the 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 analytics question team. Yeah. If you were gonna, if you had to decide in the next hour. To draft an offensive line, or to draft the, a quarterback based on you know to to factor their offensive line into the drafting of a quarterback, even okay, right? that's 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 an interesting place to take it. Yeah. But how are we going to judge the how are we going to judge the offensive lines? Give me a sense of how you're going to judge the, if we care about quarterback protection. Do we get to make up the data we get? Or yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. again, I, I, the way I would the way I would sort of do it is essentially kind of like almost like this adjusted sort of plus minus type thing we're talking about like how many you know like how many rushes how many sacks etc does a particular defensive team like you know do do does the defenses you're facing do against you versus kind of okay so you want all to, the other teams you yes. want to control for defense yeah and, and probably particular aspects of the defense that's right like the that's right seven or whatever yeah yeah okay um what, I, I want. I want to make sure that we don't just consider sacks. For example, I want to, sacks are these things that you. They, well, no, that's right. Well, but you can also consider real, both like passing yards well, no, 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 and no, no, rushing stay, yards. Stay with me for a second. Near misses. Yeah. To sacks. Yeah. Are as diagnostic as sacks themselves, and and guys that get big sack numbers. These are noisy. These are noisy measure. And so you want something a little finer. Yeah. The number of times the quarterback feels pressure. What's, what's interesting about yeah. this question, and I, I like the question that was asked. Um, I could come up with a lot of 
in different metrics. Like, for example, I could compute some sort of comparative yards per running play. I could compute some above or below number of sacks for the offensive line. I could even compute time that the quarterback has to throw the football. So I've got all these individual metrics. All these are correlated. Right. That was my point. The point is they're all correlated. And also, I don't know exactly how to combine them into one number. So if you asked me, could I think, could I sit here and think for an hour about 10 different numbers I could compute? Yes. But then if somebody wants a single number, I'm not sure what I would do with that. I could take all of those numbers, take it game by game for a lot of games over some recent history, try to use those as predictor variables Good. in some outcome, like winning the game, yeah. and then compute an equivalent number of win shares that each of these metrics... I understand this isn't the most, if you'd like, academically right stuff to do, because what's causing what, but at the end of the day, that's what I would do. Good. That's so how I would me, analyze it. Let me respond to that by with a question, but what you're proposing is an, a, essentially model-based based on the statistics that you can collect in the usual way. Uh, as, a, as a thought experience, imagine that you can not have any of that, and instead what you get are very careful graded performance levels at every lineman. Those are available. Those are available. Yeah. Those are available. Pro so, football but, uh, focus. So in other words, you go and so the question is you can go in on every play and get a graded value for every offensive lineman. How do you think that would compare to something that you would do based on the statistics side? See, I, I, I like the complementarity of these two approaches. Yeah. I, be, I believe strongly in being both yep. top-down, which is what Eric's suggestion and was. And this is completely bottom-up. this bottom is completely bottom-up. Bottom both are flawed, both are incomplete, but you balance out by, reason, by approaching them both But how ways. would you balance the, the, them? Let me just say, do? the reason I'm smiling is what you guys have just described – is what I did for the Philadelphia Eagles for five years. That's exactly what we told them to do and what they did. <laughs> we said right? it's not about scouts, grades, and it's not about top-down statistics. It's about both. So, so, so Adi asked how you blend them. So, yep. well, you can put them both into the same mathematical model. Matter of fact, you can do a couple things. You could see whether scouts' grades are predicted by observable measures. So that's one thing. So how, in some sense, reliable are scouts' grades? Another way, a positive view is... What does the scout grade add above and beyond? Well, that was the, the second yeah, thing I was going to say, yeah. is that I build a model where I'm trying to predict some outcome. I add the top-down variables, and then I add scouts' grades. By the way, scouts' grades, at least for the work I did for the Eagles, does add significantly yeah, to the absolutely. model. Of course. And not only that, I thought they were more unreliable. We actually got the Eagles. The Eagles were very forward-looking in this. We got, I mean, Howie Roseman was extraordinarily forward-looking. Getting multiple scouts to grade to see the rate of reliability yeah, of the yeah, scouts' yeah. grades. Were they were, were they reliable? were they were? I mean, within within a small grade, right. like if you want to call B minus to B plus. Let me yes. give you one complication with these scout grades. If you do that exercise, how independent do you think these grades are? The scouts are going to try right. to pull independent scores for the players for say a game. They're going to grade five offensive linemen for a game. They're going to give them game grades. How independent do you think those scores are? Well, conditional on the outcome, or what do you mean independent? From each other. Well, they won't be independent because they're, they just watch the same game. So the, the, no, 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 the, the, the independence the, between players. Between players. Oh, in between the players. They, ah. They're basically right. purporting to provide independent scores. They're but not we know that they're highly yeah. dependent on each other for all kinds of reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Multiple reasons. They're facing, the same, they're facing the same defense. You see the same outcome each play. No. They're playing the same offensive strategy. There's lots of reasons they wouldn't be, but they're purporting well, to give me, you so I, independent value. Here's what I think you could do. This actually gets to a good measurement issue. If you ask me to grade, let's call it the right tackle and the right guard, let's say playing next to each other, could I say one's an A, one's an A minus, maybe? I think the issue is if you told me, did person A have a good game, did person B have a bad game? If you let me do it on a binary scale, I actually think this is one of those cases where I would trust the data more on a coarser scale than a more granular scale. Like, I, like someone's, really? I, 
I didn't say it's more informative. I said if the reliability of the data. Did this person have a good game or a bad game, or did this person have an A or a B? I would trust the good, bad. Aren't you I just would. inducing? I aren't you I just am. removing some? I am. You're, you're, you're yeah, discretizing you're, yes. a continuous the variable and thereby reducing dependence. Data processing destroys information. I, information theory quality. If you listen to the first two sentences <laughs> of what I said, I just said, I understand I'm giving up information, and I'm degrading the data intentionally to get more reliable data. More That's reliable. My, I don't, yeah. Well, there, less, a, less dependent data, less certainly. De- less dependent. I want to point out that this is an incredibly general problem that we have. We're trying to do individual performance evaluation in fundamentally group settings. And we think we can parse individual performance far more cleanly than we actually can. We've talked about offensive line, but... It, it, we see it in sports and across the across the the range, but we also see it outside of sports. It's a huge it's a huge challenge. Well, All taking right. just back to soccer, back to soccer, exactly. the sport you want to it's, talk about. There was a, I forget the gentleman on France where they were basically saying it's not that he's scoring so much, but he's allowing other people to score. And every expert said, "Yep, this guy is helping the team. He's had a great game. He didn't score yeah. and had no shots on goal." And they're all saying. Unbelievable game. Their their striker out front who hadn't scored. Yeah. Okay, fellas, that has been the first quarter. We've still got three quarters to go. Come back after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, eight to ten Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with it was the whole crew. Now we're down to three quarters strength. Adi Weiner just had to roll off to the classroom, but Eric Bradlow is still here. Shane Jensen is still here. We're going to be here for the next hour and a half. You can join the conversation one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six, or email us businessradio at siriusxm dot com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com or at us on Twitter. We are at WMoneyBall. All of our sports analytics guests are up there. We have guests in the next two half-hour segments as usual. In this half hour, to help us debrief the 2018 World Cup, we are delighted to welcome back to the show our friend Chris Alexopoulos. Chris, good morning to you. Good morning. I, do you know how excited I am that I get a soccer guy gets an invite back on this show? <laughs> I feel like I'm making like huge strides for the growth of the game of you, soccer. You are. I mean, my God. I mean, you alone are going to expand the followership of the sport this morning. And we are. Me, yeah, me and Taylor Twelman doing stick figures on Sports <laughs> Center. We're, yes, drawing stick figures is the big thing we've done. So, so some folks know that Chris is the lead soccer producer at ESPN. He's been involved with every World Cup since 1994 until this year. Sadly, until this year, and uh, we talked to Chris briefly, not a full guest segment, but briefly just before the Cup started to find out your your kind of frame of mind and your frame and and and, and your heart going into this World Cup. <laughs> Which was different for you in two ways. Once you weren't producing, but also the the U.S. was not in it. So we want to talk about the tournament because everyone, you know, was excited about how it went. But we also first want to hear, in the end, how did it go for you? How, what was the last month like for you? Nah, it wasn't fun for me. It was not. I was not good to be around. Oh, Chris. I was. I was. Yeah, I was borderline grumpy <laughs> uh, every time the games were on. It's 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 really ego. It's only ego driven. Like you're in the middle of working on the World Cup. It's going, you know, phenomenally well. At least the last two were, 
and then suddenly you're out and you're yeah. you're sitting uh, watching on TV. So yeah. it was not it you know it was such a labor of love for so many for you know almost two decades. So it was not it was not a, it was not a good time. It was not a good time. Craig, but I I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, no, so there's no no adaptation. Sorry. The bitterness persisted and didn't yeah. get better. Yeah, that's too bad. Were, were you I, were you naturally? Predicted you predicted that was going to go. Yeah, I predicted it. Well, so Heather's your wife must be happy. Kids must be happy that uh, the game, the tournament's over. We can get their friendly zop back. What was it? Here's a here's a softball of a question. How did you feel about Fox's production? <laughs> Great question that I'm not going to answer. I will say this. I um, I feel like your silence speaks volumes, but I have some friends that work over there that I worked with at ESPN who I thought did fantastic work, mm-hmm. and um, and I decided to spread it around. I watched a little Fox. I watched a little Telemundo. I had uh, access to the World Feed in England, the okay. ITV feed. So I spread it around. So I actually can't grade. I can't grade it because I didn't see. Uh, um, I didn't see all of it. Okay. Well, Chris, so this I, is I this is Eric Bradlow. Let me build on Kate's question. I, I hate to say, it. let me ask him. Let's imagine some. We have lots of listeners here on Wharton Moneyball. Imagine someone saying, "I don't understand." Put the camera on the field. Move, have the camera follow the ball. What do you mean good coverage? What would make good coverage as opposed to bad coverage? So here's one interesting aspect that most people don't know, and that is that when you buy the rights to the World Cup, you buy. FIFA and their host broadcasters feed uh-huh. and it goes to everyone in the world so okay. everyone watches the exact same cuts the exact same choices oh, of wow. shots so if you're going off of the main camera camera one everyone in the world from Africa to Europe to North America sees the exact same production and the reason wow. is because they have 35 cameras out there and a couple of helicopters and if every country wanted to do their own um, coverage their own way then um, you'd have a hundred cameras out there and no places, and you know right. there aren't a hundred places for a hundred cameras. So okay. it's an agreement, and it's the it's really the best directors in Europe and people who do soccer, you know, all the time. So there's not much um, there's not much that each network can do. So ESPN, Fox, even NBC with the English Premier League benefit from having a world feed. You are you do not have to do what the NFL has to do, which okay. is you know, produce and direct and put on like the highest quality possible show you can during the 90 minutes. Okay. So what are you responsible for? The hour of pregame, the 15 minutes of halftime and the hour or whatever after the game is over. That's where your coverage uh, comes into play. And on a big event like this, it is important to have voices who matter, production that, you know, has all the subtleties that I can't really explain why they're important. But when you add 50 of them up, it turns into a, a great broadcast. Okay. And the only thing you can do in the 90 minutes is um, is what announcers you're putting, you know, on the game. That yeah, makes okay. a huge difference, at least to my viewing experience. I, I've, I've, one thing I loved about watching uh, the World Cup from Europe is that you, you always have the actual game, like like the sound on. You know, like it, 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 it's, it, it's a huge part. I, I feel like watching soccer, I've really kind of realized over the last few years that it's – Part of the reason I've it's been difficult for me to get drawn into a soccer game is often it's on mute uh, in some bar or something like that, and I just have to watch it based on visual. The sound and the color commentary really draws you in, in my opinion, when it's well done. When it's well done. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris, what about what about the analytics side of things? I remember a couple of years ago you told us 
that one of your biggest challenges was to get, you know, even the announcers to use the data that y'all had queued up for them. It, where, where, where is soccer analytics these days? Not necessarily in like cutting edge latest stuff, but where is it in terms of translating all the way to the viewer? And the channel's interest in it, the producer's interest in using soccer analytics. I was keeping kind of a one eye on that over the course of the tournament, and they're just—I mean, Fox isn't very analytically or analytically oriented, but you can speak to the sport more general. Like, how how much progress are they making in translating it all the way into the production and to the viewer? I, I don't think that much, to be completely honest with you. Fox did the exact same thing that ESPN would have done. Um, which is uh, take some some dips and you know to put their toes in the pool, I guess you'd say, mm-hmm. uh, but not diving in all the way. And it still is, you know, when we started having these conversations about soccer analytics, you know, three or four years ago on this show, um, you know, I was hoping for some sort of magic bullet, um, you know, some sort of statistic that really could right. uh, analyze a specific type of player or position by position or overall. And, um, and, and, and coupled with a change in soccer culture, which is uh, anti-statistics, really. Okay. Um, and I have to say, unfortunately, that I don't think it's changed that much at all. And okay. I, I, don't, I don't know that it's on the, the – te- I, don't, I don't know that the television broadcaster can make it uh, a normalcy. Um, I, I think it has to be a stat that uh, – uh, uh, a statistic that fans can believe in, yeah. and right now that that simply hasn't happened. And it's been interesting because those uh, who's taken up the mantle of trying to do that is Audi. So Audi, right. um, in the last two years, has come up with the Audi Player Index, which is um, uh, at least an attempt to compare um, players at individual positions and come up with a score based on certain plays throughout the game. Now, the, the good thing is that Opta Stats, which is the official statistician of soccer, um, does keep very in-depth movement tracking, um, you know, uh, and, and, and statistical analysis for now all the leagues, all, almost all competition. Mm-hmm. So the data is there. It's just now Audi takes that data, turns it into a statistic, and quite frankly, it's the explanation of that statistic and getting people to buy in from coaches to players to fans mm-hmm. to broadcasters. Mm-hmm. And that just has not, that still has not happened, which I know is not to everyone on this show's liking. Right. right. So, Chris, this is Sarah Proud, Logan. I would say when I reflect back on the World Cup, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. The two statistics that kind of resonate with me the most or have stuck with me the most is the fraction of goals that were scored on set plays as opposed mm-hmm. to free play. And the second one was the, in my view, the lower than expected success on penalty kicks during the event. Like I think it was something like eighty percent or eighty-five percent. I was mm-hmm. I was expecting a much higher number. Could you talk about those two statistics and maybe those will get people excited? Because when I reflect back, those were the two numbers that seemed to stick it's, with it's me. It's true. I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a. I watched a couple of the knockout round games where it went to penalty kicks, and I felt like the success rate on those penalty kicks was closer to fifty percent. No, no, it was like twenty-two it, out of twenty-nine or something. It was yeah, right, right. right around seventy-five. I, I, I just seventy-five. Then. No, I just but, said seventy-five. I would have guessed higher, and I would have guessed also that it seems like there's more scoring going on, which is true, but it's coming off set plays as opposed to free play. Any thoughts about that? Well, I'll start with the penalty kicks, and I think that comes down to, again, uh, um, sorry if this is uh, the layman's way of describing it, but, uh, but 
I think the variables in penalty kick taking, there are only a few. And number one, two, and three are nerves. Yeah. <laughs> uh, four would be, does a goalkeeper have any insight into the way a certain player uh, places the ball? Sometimes there, there are some useful charts on um, a player's history of do they put, do they go to the right, do they go to the left, do they sometimes go down the center? Sometimes that can be useful. We did an, uh, I did a produced the MLS Cup uh, five or six years ago where the goalkeeper for Sporting Kansas City literally had a sheet of paper uh, and he had it out just before they were about to go to penalty kicks to decide the champion. Uh, Jimmy Nielsen was his name. And literally he had a piece of paper and part of it is theatrics, which is also a variable. I don't know that right. you can account for it, but literally, but he saved, I think, three or four uh, penalty kicks. I mean, look, oh, wow. if you go up to a, if you go out onto a soccer field and, and look and see just how actually close the penalty kick spot is, you would be shocked that anybody can miss it. But I, I think that comes down to nerves. And so, Chris, real, real oh, quickly, before you leave the penalty kick, Pickford, the English goalie, apparently said he had pre-match research telling him which way Colombian players would go, and only one of the players, one out of five presumably, went a different way than his pre-match research said he would. Well, shouldn't all goalkeepers, shouldn't every goalkeeper have research? You would think yeah. so. Yes, it's not so. done by everybody. <laughs> everybody. It's insanity. Because they just have to you guess know. anyway, so you'd like to guess with the base rate, presumably. Exactly, but I, I do think it comes down, again, that, you know, I – it shouldn't be any great revelation that some research should help a goalkeeper, you know, tip off right. which way and guess. I mean, there's three ways you can go. You go left, right, or center, and only a perfectly placed penalty kick, you know, can beat a goalkeeper who has guessed right. Right. Um, you know, uh, I've always, you know, I've always been taught uh, as a kid that like you go on the ground to the corner to the, you know, to the left or right far corner. But I've always found in watching over so long now that like when you when you blast it up it, it seems more difficult statistically i don't know if that's 100 percent true I, I, I think what the numbers i've seen are that they're conditional on being on goal those are more successful but you risk getting it above the bar which is terrible it would also seem chris um that and then it would be interesting to hear your thoughts about set pieces as well but just back to Cade's point it would seem like there's two base rates that every team should know one would be Overall, how many people go left, right, center? Forget an individual player. And then you could possibly know this for individual players. But you're telling us that this is exactly the kind of data that is available but doesn't tend to get used. Well, look, it's goalkeeper's choice, I suppose. Um, I don't know why a goalkeeper would not take the information and use it. And I don't know that goalkeepers are not taking that information and using it. Right. I, I think it's more upon the... It's you know I, I would I think it's safe to assume that every goalkeeper, regardless of the nation, uh, has you know has will have that research. Every game, just about every game, and all the statistics are available to every federation. You know from you know from the you know in the World Cup from Germany to Morocco, everyone has that statistical information readily available all their federations do or at least they should right everybody has enough money to go around to get basic uh, data like that so it you know again i think it comes down to the players who are kicking mixing it up a right. little bit and having 
two or three different options or ways that they want to go. Right. But I think, again, it comes down to you're standing, you know, however many feet away from a goalkeeper and you know every single person in your country, not like the United <laughs> States, every single person in your country is either going to think you're awesome or you're not going to be able to walk the streets. God. You know, and, you know, in, in England's case, you're thinking, you know, Southgate, Fatty, the names in your head are like ingrained into you since you were four years old. Of guys who've, who've missed, missed for England. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. You know, right. it's like a list of infamy. It's an, right. it's an infamous list. So, yeah, I think, unfortunately, and this is what stinks about soccer quite a bit, is it, you know, it's a, it's it's like nerves is the number one reason. And, and that's hard to, and that's just something that's, but that's part of the that's part of the drama. That's one of the reasons better, we like sports. It's better than these... flipping a coin like they used to do or whatever. I, I still think they could uh, uh, improve the whole overtime experience. Mm-hmm. But... So we're talking to Chris Alexopoulos. Chris is the lead producer for soccer on ESPN and an occasional guest over the years of this program. Uh, Chris, Eric asked this second question about set pieces. There was so much conversation on Fox about the importance of set pieces and a seemingly disproportionate number of the goals came off of set pieces. So we're talking about corner kicks and free kicks. Is that a trend? Is that legitimate? If so, why would that be? What's the hypothesis? What would be the mechanism for why set pieces would be increasingly important as a, as a score, as a scoring device? So not as, so as an observer and not as a coach, this is one of those things where I would ask someone who uh, is a coach. So um, I don't know that I'm going to have, this is going to be a guess, I think a little bit on my part. <clears throat> and yes, it was disproportionate, but I feel like it was an outlier. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I really do feel like this was an, this tournament was an outlier because I don't think there are any trends in terms of, um, well, look, you know, now that I think about it, the only thing that I can see potentially being a difference is the uh, is the the use of uh, video assistant uh, referee VAR, which was a uh, uh-huh. which was okay. a big talking point. And I feel like maybe defenders can't get away with as much as they used to get away with. Uh-huh. Um, you know, a play if 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 a defender, you know prevents a goal by grabbing a player that can be looked at and historically that's what they're they're trying to they're trying to get away with as much of that as possible without getting called right they're trying to basically like you're talking about the jumble of players like on a corner kick or something like that the jumble of players in the middle there's a lot of clutching and grabbing in there and there's it happened in the final i mean it happened in the final perisic's goal that tied it up uh or sorry uh perisic's handball Handball, that gave france the two to one lead you know that was a that that's something where if I'm a defender and I see that, that I felt like that was a natural play. Yes, it hit his hand, but he wasn't yeah. trying to prevent anything. Yeah, from right, right. And if I'm a defender, I'm like I'm going to get nabbed if my hands aren't by my side, and you know I'm not touching anyone, and that's going to free up people in those situations. So, you know, again, I can't speak to the mentality necessarily. Well, that's of a interesting. Right now, yeah, it's great. That's a possible mechanism. It makes that that's a plausible that's a plausible reason because I was just I was going with a null hypothesis. It's just small sample. Listen, Chris, we've only got a few minutes, and I want to hear at least a little bit from you as a fan. It was such a, an exciting cup. And you've got you were working through some bitterness, but were you enjoying any of the <laughs> soccer? Where, I mean, did you enjoy Belgium's play or Croatia's gritty? I mean, what, what was your experience as a fan? As a fan, I mean, it was weird because, uh, you know, again, I, I'm sorry to be uh, 
You're not over the, it uh, yet. Going, I, I'm not on the uh, <laughs> I'm not on in the chair right now. You know, uh, but uh, uh, it was. It's just. It's it's such a fun tournament. I um the during the I found myself missing the group stage where there were three games in a row. Yeah. The uh, two days off and then two games and then two days off again just killed me. And I. I do you lose a little steam. I felt like I lost a little steam. Like I was not. I didn't okay. even watch the third place game, which I feel bad about. <laughs> um, you know, I, I had a little bit of a different experience because I'm watching Rob Stone, who's I used to work with for many years, and I'm rooting for him. And you know, um, and um, a couple of other people behind the scenes. So I, I, I watched it a little bit in a different way. Well, so Chris, can, um, you know, as a casual observer, it feels like the, the play is just different now. It's a little more exciting. There's more counterattacking. Is that legitimate characterization, and, and that, no. is that a trend? No, that's always been the way. It's just, you know, the, the hard part about, you know, being involved in soccer is the, the narratives that are out there for fans, for people who are just coming to the game, okay. where a 0 game is boring and it's not. Yeah. You know, uh, the game is infinitely more exciting uh, if you are involved and interested in the team. So I I don't think, I mean, look, this tournament did offer more late goals than in the past, but that, that it does happen every tournament. There is a, there's a little bit of short term, uh, you know, a little bit of short term memory when grading this particular world cup versus the others, Uh, 2010 and 1990 were not that much fun, but there were great moments throughout all of them. Um, so I, I, I personally, I think this is this is what it always is. It's okay. a great, fun, big tournament, and you know, soccer is fun. That's it. <laughs> all right. Well, listen, Chris, we appreciate your making time for us this morning, and uh, and kind of bearing with us as we as we prod you over this unique cup. But we we always benefit from your analysis, and we thank you for the time. I'm more than happy to be on this show. Thanks, guys. Have you a bet. great one. Absolutely. That was Chris Alexopoulos. Chris is lead soccer producer for ESPN. He's worked up until this year, every World Cup since 1994. Occasional guest here and a friend of the show. That has been one hour, the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner in the classroom on this fine July morning. You can join the conversation, one eight four four wharton That's one 942 7866. You could also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, or follow us on Twitter, add us on Twitter. The handle up there is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests from around the world of sports analytics. Good way to stay on top of things up there. We're just off the phone with Chris Alexopoulos at ESPN talking sports, debriefing the World Cup. Rolling into the next half hour, we have another guest delighted to welcome to the show for the first time. Michael Fishman. Michael is the assistant GM and vice president of the New York Yankees, a little ball club you might have heard a little bit north of here. Michael, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me on. Happy to be here. We are delighted to have you. Appreciate you making time for us. I understand you have been in charge of analytics there 
all the way back to 2006. This is impressive. We want to hear a lot about what's going on with the Yankees these days, but maybe the right place to start is just to find out how you got into this position. And then with that kind of history, how have you seen it evolve, not just in the sport as a whole, but within the Yankees, it seems to have evolved a fair bit analytics. Yeah, um, I, I came from a, uh, a math background since I was uh, since I was a, a kid. I uh, excelled in math and kind of continued along that uh, math progression through being a, uh, a mathematics major at Yale. Uh, graduated in 2001, uh, then did actuarial work at an insurance company. I then became the, uh, the Yankees' first analyst. So, in, Michael, uh, let me just stop you right there because you've described a transition from what might sound like the most boring job possible to what might sound like one of the most exciting jobs possible. I think we're doing a disservice to actuaries, though. Can you tell us, you go from Yale, math undergrad at Yale, to an actuary for an insurance company. What was that job like? What does that involve? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was it was a lot of, uh, I mean, it, uh, I mean, doing calculations, prob- probabilities, and and, uh, and, do, and just doing doing analysis and, uh, and uh, you know, life insurance companies, so um, kind of on on. On projections and uh, uh, they kind of the, the change I wanted to make was kind of taking the subject matter from insurance to uh, to baseball. Kind of how do I take what I was uh, what I was good at um, being math and uh, and uh, and uh, and, uh, and combining it with what my uh, passion was outside of baseball, outside of work uh, yep. being baseball, yep. and how I could kind of combine the two into uh, kind of creating the. Uh, the dream job for me, um, which was uh, kind of working in baseball. What, what was the opening that allowed you to make that transition? Um, yeah, and it, I'd say uh, I'd say the book Moneyball was a uh, was it was it was a big factor in it. Um, book came out in uh, 2003, and uh, I think team team started uh, started realizing that that uh, there was there were things other teams were doing um, that they weren't doing, mm-hmm. and uh, there was a need to uh, incorporate a statistical analysis. Uh, um, more within within teams, uh, so it started uh, kind of opening doors, creating creating jobs. Um, at that point in time, there were, there were few teams that had any sort of statistical analysis. Yep. Uh, kind of the, the book showed some of the inefficiencies in player evaluation in the game, um, and some teams wanted to uh, kind of close that close that gap um, right away. Um, so I feel like after that book, what I what I didn't think was a realistic career, kind of working in baseball, um, became a realistic career option for me, mm-hmm. um, and I made that kind of decision that I was going to go after uh, go after my dream job. So I, uh, I sent out sample projects to uh, all 30 teams. Oh um, wow! Yeah, I was willing to go in, anywhere to work in baseball, and I went to the baseball winter meetings, uh, did a trip around spring training sites in Florida and Arizona and trying to meet as many people in the game as they could. Um, Michael, when you were doing that, did you see other Michael Fishman out there doing the same thing? Were, were there little groups of you doing these things, or were you kind of out there on your own? Um, there, 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 there were other Michael Fishmans out there, and there, there was uh, yeah, there, there was that that uh, kind of group of people trying to get into the game, and especially that time with uh, – with uh, statistical analysis kind of being the kind of the, the next next wave at that point, uh-huh. um, people wanted wanted to do that. Um, so it's uh, I'd say it's gr- it's grown a, grown a lot since then, and right. and there and there there are uh, a lot more people go, going after going after now. Um, but because at that point in time it was it was still still, still newish to the game of baseball. Right. Um, but there but there were those those others with uh, kind of a similar dream who were who were. Uh, 
go, going after it, and it's, uh, you kind of see you, you look back uh, and, and now and see some of the same people who have gotten 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 into the game and had a lot of uh, success in, in it. Um, it's it's interesting to hear about your sort of like kind of like Moneyball inspiration from the now having worked with the Yankees uh, for so many years because I, you know I always you know when I read Moneyball back in the day. Um, I always sort of thought of it as sort of almost a treatise, like, you know, written in reaction to the Yankees and, and teams, you know, the big market teams. So, you know, Moneyball was all about, you know, we don't have enough money to s- compete with the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Dodgers, so we're going to find secret hidden value in players. And, uh, you know, I always sort of wondered, what would be Moneyball be like if you actually tried to use those analytical tools but also had the money behind it? So it must, that must be have been an interesting experience for you. Yeah, I mean, they're they're uh, and they're actually they're inefficiencies of the game that you could take advantage of at all levels. So on, I don't know, in a in a smaller market or smaller dollar situation, um, it's it's uh, it's uh, kind of t- trying to find some of those uh, um, cheaper players uh, who are uh, who are undervalued. Who uh, kind of maybe you maybe talking about some of the some of the minor league free agents, cheaper, uh, younger service players available in trade. Um, but those, those, those same things still apply to a bigger market club as well. Um, cause the, I mean, the more, the more cheap talent you can, uh, can get into your system and, uh, um, and it allows you to, uh, kind of gives you more payroll flexibility otherwise. And, uh, it's really just all about getting as much, much talent onto your team and giving your best selves the best chance to win, no matter, uh, kind of what the market size is. So, Michael, this is Eric Bradlow. First of all, let me just say, um, I grew up in Manhattan. I'm a lifelong Yankee fan. I probably went to every Yankee playoff game between, let's say, 1996 and 2001. So he's, it's he's insufferable, Michael. Yeah. So, I if for any people that have listened to us for the last four years on Wharton Moneyball, they That's know the that you cut me open and there's ever. the blue and white of the Yankees. It is. Uh, it's it's great to talk to you. Um, I wanted to ask you a question. Um, the question is, how have have you seen with the Yankees? Have you seen, since looking at both of your titles as assistant general manager and vice president, is analytics being used both on the on-field side and the business side of the Yankees? Which of the two do you think is further advanced? Yeah, um, I mean, my my focus with the with the Yankees is on the is on the uh, kind of putting putting the team team together and uh and the kind of the on non field side all the really the baseball operations side side of the Yankees and we're we're doing uh we're doing doing a lot with it um I mean across the cross baseball operations really really applies to uh to uh all to all areas within uh within the baseball operations whether that's uh whether that's trades or uh you know, free agents we're constantly uh really evaluating every every player looking for Undervalued players buy low opportunities. Can we um, can we find some players who have been unlucky? We can expect to produce more. And it applies on the uh, on the really in the amateur draft side. There's so much data we have available now. Um, we have an analyst devoted to amateur amateur scouting um, and uh, and uh, and really kind of in, in in game situations. Uh, I mean, there's there's a lot that uh, can can be. Uh, uh, kind of, a lot of decisions that are, that we face in games, uh, you know, kind of can be used analytics as part of the decision-making process in terms of uh, what are good matchups, uh, what are uh, situations for in-game strategy of like stolen bases, 
um, as well as in defensive positioning. Um, it really so it really applies to all areas within our baseball operations department. So have the Yankees been successfully able to? So I'll just use my own example. When I worked with the Eagles, we were very fortunate that we had a in someone in like your position, an assistant general manager at the time, Howie Roseman, who lived and breathed analytics. He reported to a president, Joe Banner, who lived and breathed analytics, who was reporting to an owner who's got a PhD in sociology, Jeffrey Lurie. And so it wasn't hard to get analytics adopted from the top down. So by, by the way, let me just note that what year was that? Just say the first year that Howie was on the job or that Joe was on the job. It would have been 2005, 2006. Okay, so that team, that all-star team, that perfect alignment of interest at the top took 12 years to translate into a championship. Absolutely. So I just wanted to ask you, is there a, you know, from Mr. Steinbrenner to Mr. Cashman and on down, is it, are they all into analytics? Is is this something that it, like, forget, you know, the Yankees have been around for 100 plus years. If we look 100 plus years in the future, is analytics always going to be a big part of the Yankees? Or do you think it's something that is idiosyncratic to who happens to be sitting in the president of the baseball operations seat? Yeah, I mean, I think I think with the um, processes we've put in place, it's always going to be a you know, big big part of what what we do. Uh, and the ownership made the commitment with the with how much we've invested in it, and we've uh, uh, built up our analytics department and our you know, computer systems to the point where it's uh, it's just a part of part of everything we do here. Um, so for yeah, anybody who comes in here in the future, there's so much that's built up and in place that um, that there that it, it would be I guess foolish not to use what we've what we've created um, and uh, and fortunate to be in a situation where um, where it, it where it is uh, such a big part of and what what we do and not the only thing um, but and then just kind of the belief through all the uh, all the uh, key people in the organization uh, and uh, and uh, you know, Brian Cashman gave me a great opportunity when he when he hired me here in 2005, and I think from the beginning he uh, he really uh, kind of valued what what uh, I contributed in, in that role when I when I was director of quantitative analysis, um, and uh, kind of through through my time here as assistant GM, um, and uh, and he really gave the opportunity to to build the build the uh, that quantitative analysis department, and uh, it's put a lot of stock in the the research that they've done. To, to what extent, Michael is the are the hard debates within a club settled? I mean, it, it, so often when we're talking to someone inside a team, we're talking about okay, how do you persuade? Or we're talking to we talk to a vendor and analyst outside. How do you get the teams to 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 be interested in these things or to actually, you know, use them when making decisions? With baseball, it kind of feels like that game is over. Like the people are bought in, it's done. But that that's probably not the case. It probably seems more that way from a distance than it actually is. It, are there still frontiers where you're you feel like you're actively pushing the uh, the ownership or the management or the coaches or the players in ways that they're not yet comfortable? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's, I mean, there, there's there's always uh, new things we're we're exploring. And uh, and each each new thing will uh, each new discovery we make is going to take a, a certain amount of buy-in and convincing, and you have to have, you have to really uh, yeah kind of trust that the uh, analysis done was done correctly and uh, and. Uh, now, Michael, we we I know better than to ask you for what an example is that you're working on now because you can't talk that freely. But can you give us an example from recent years that you've seen kind of come to fruition but wasn't clear? When you first started pushing it, or have you seen in the league 
evolve, that it wasn't clear up front that it was going to evolve in that direction? Yeah, I mean, you can take 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 an example from from the league uh, of uh, and defensive positioning and shifts, and uh, how a, a couple of teams uh, started started pushing the envelope with it, and uh, there was probably a lot a lot of pushback from uh, you know, every, every time you see a uh, a ball get through where a fielder would have been in a normal defense. Uh, there's kind of the you know, the questions you'll hear the tv announcers make comments about about it and uh and you'll you, you know you can you can see a frustration from a pitcher of of a hit given up and uh so there's yeah, i think you could see a lot a lot of questioning at, at that point in time around the league uh of hey is this is this the right thing um and then and as as uh as teams had success with it you, you started to see uh can more and more teams adopt it and it became uh in shift to become commonplace in the game why is there any variation still? And there's such big variation across the league in teams' willingness to use the shift. Why does that exist? I mean, I, I, yeah, I think there's there's a general acceptance now that it's it's a good idea. But there, every every team still has their own methodologies for for how how to how to do it and what what the exact right positioning is. And uh, and uh, not not every not everybody's going to think exactly the same way, and everybody's going to try and do as best they can, so there are naturally going to be some differences. Mm-hmm. So, Michael, let me ask you a question about, I'm an obviously, I know you probably can't talk about a specific issue happening now, but I want to ask you as a general principle. So, obviously, there's a potentially big trade that's, who knows if it's finalized, well, you might know if it's finalized, we don't know if it's finalized, the Manny Machado potentially to the Dodgers. I'm not asking you about that trade, but after that trade, let's say it gets done, is this something that you as the Yankees would analyze and say, I wonder who got the better part of that deal using whatever mathematical models you have? And would you use that to learn about, if you'd like, the propensity of the Orioles or the Dodgers and what their preferences are or how they seem to be evaluating players? I don't want to ask, talk, you don't, if you can, you can talk about that specific trade if you want, but even just generally, will you evaluate trades made by other teams and see if that's a, I'll use your words, a buy-sell opportunity for the Yankees at some point in the future? Yeah, um, you always look at the kind of transactions that other teams are making and, uh, and kind of as learning opportunities, what what are what are they what are they what are they seeing? Is there anything that we're missing? Why did why do they trade for for certain players? Uh, is there are they looking at the same things we're looking at? Is there mm-hmm. something they're looking at that we should we should be looking at? Um, and how are they how are they valuing the players? It can be a reference point for for future trades. Uh, um, do uh, and his. Uh, and similar trades in the future. What what's the expected uh, expected return? And that's kind of a data point uh, you can look at it, um, to say that hey, next next time this type of player is available, this is a general cost. Doesn't mean it's worth paying that cost, um, but it, it but it gives you another 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 data point, and then you kind of constantly analyzing why why are teams making the moves they're making, and just try to make ourselves better. Following up on sort of transactions, kind of like the Machado trade. It must be so difficult to try and value or to try and sort of say like Manny Machado, who are we have this sort of observed like, you know, history of his actual Major League Baseball performance. How many 20 year old prospects is that guy worth? And, and, and how good do those prospects have to be to 
that kind of like calculus it feels like for doing currency. a transaction must be so difficult. I mean, you know, I, I feel like historically it's been difficult enough to value, take two major league baseball players with observed history and compare them. Now you're trying to come up with some equivalence between somebody with a large history and a bunch of people that we don't have really anything but scouting on. Yeah, it's it's not it's not not an easy process. Um, yeah, I think uh, I mean a lot of it is coming up with the, with the what the value of of prospects is. Uh, how do you pro- how do you project what they're what they're going to uh, kind of produce in the future? Um, and then how do you translate um, their production in the future? Really, a distribution of their production production because you don't. You, you don't know what they're going to be. You know, there's a certain probability they're going to reach a certain level, and a certain probability they're going to be at a little bit lower level. And what is what is the value of that prospect um, from there, considering all the all the outcomes for that player? Um, how many wins is expected to produce? And then what's what's that? What's the value of that win? Um, and discounting that wins in the future, um, and then kind of adding up the various players, taking into account uh, kind of roster limitations that you can you can only hold a certain number of uh of prospects on your roster on your on your 40-man roster um so there kind of all, all that kind of factors in plays together come the value of of each player and the value of a trade package and uh and uh comparing both sides of the package we're talking to michael fishman michael is the assistant gm and vice president for the new york yankees he heads their analytics group where he has been since 2006 we're asking him just how trades are evaluated, and, and I'm, you know, Shane was focusing on the prospects, which seems like a, the most difficult part of it to value. I'm curious, though, when, when we see teams acquire a, a known asset like Machado, to what extent do you incorporate some uncertainty? And to what extent do you say, well, you know, we think this is where he's trending, but you know, we've got to look at age curves, we've got to look at injury propensity. We just have to factor in. To what extent do you say we have to discount all of that just because we know – we don't know everything. What you guys are probably one of the more sophisticated teams. You've got one of the bigger analytics departments. Can you give us some sense of how you think about valuing even the known asset like a Machado? Yeah, I mean, yeah, even yeah, no, even known. Yeah, I mean, even taking major league players who uh, we've seen what they've produced for last number of years. There's there is a lot of un- uncertainty in what they're going to produce moving forward. Uh, yeah, the, the age aging curves is, is is a big factor, especially the players uh, um, as, as getting into their um, decline years, um, and uh, and or versus you know also players uh, kind of the beginning of the career who are going to see going to see the growth years, um, and uh, and there and really a, a, there's a lot of randomness in baseball, so a a season of a player's statistics doesn't tell you what his what his true talent level is. Um, so it's uh, yeah, there's still that that uh, kind of projection element, and try and create our best uh, projection systems we can to try and um, take our best guesses at what what they're going to be, what players are going to produce in the future. Um, then then really combining all the other factors of uh, um, of all the information we have. So there's a lot of uh, kind of synthesizing all the information we have from the scouting reports, the medical information, players' makeup, character information. Trying to put together all the pieces of the puzzle on what what a player can be. Well, Michael, I have, this is Eric Bradlow again. I have two questions. Let's take them one at a time. We were just talking early on in the show before we started interviewing you about the role of let's call it hard data versus scouting data. Could you talk briefly about how you think about combining those two data sources at the New York Yankees? 
Yeah, I mean it's it's I mean it's it's a. Uh... Looking, you know, looking through the, the two lenses, both from the stat side and the scout side, you want to have as many different opinions on on uh, on each player, um, and uh, and uh, and it's trying to see if if uh, if there's something something that's being missed that that uh, that a stat projection might might not have in a player that we can gather through the scouting lens or uh, or vice versa. So I think we look at them both. Both independently, so look look at them individually. What do the what do the stats say? What does the, what do the scouting reports say? Um, and then also and also and also doing the trying to do the, the combination of uh, in, in projecting this player. How do we take how do we take both uh, both data sources and uh, combine it to over one overall projection? So just a specific. I, I'll ask you a yes/no question. You can obviously. It's always your right to not choose to answer it. If you've let's assume you've run whether it's a machine learning random forest or regression or whatever type of model you've built to project some outcome where you've put in, let's call it, hard data from past uh, performance, and you've put in scouting data. So you've looked at, you've used just scouting data, just hard coding data, and put in both. Have you gotten significant predictive value for scouting data above and beyond hard data? Because I was saying earlier in the show, when I worked with the Eagles, that's exactly what we found. They're not 100, they're not perfectly correlated. And as a matter of fact, there is independent sources. So have you done these types of analyses and found the same thing I found in certain projects? Yeah, yeah, we, we, yeah, we, we find, we found the value. Michael, let me ask you a nuance in there on, on the way you go about this, because this is a, this is a very general problem in the world. I mean, you know, doing a forecasting project with the pharmaceutical company about sales, they've got some data, they've got some experts. How do you bring these things together? One thing that we grapple with it a little bit is whether you use the model, which you tend to like, whether you use the model to kind of improve and train the experts, or whether you try to keep them as separate as possible so that they are truly independent sources. Do, so are your scouts, like, interacting with the model in some way, or are you trying to say, look, no offense, fellas, we're going to keep this one over here to the side because we don't want to corrupt your perspective? Yeah, I mean there are yeah, the two, two two different ways you can look at it. Um, we, I mean we do give access to a lot of our our data to uh, to, to to our scouts again to, get, to arm them with as much information as as they can to uh, kind of to help help them figure out what the what the player is. Uh, I mean they don't necessarily have every uh, every model model we have, but a lot, a lot of our data information is, is information we make available to them that they can use. Uh, okay. So, Michael, let me ask you. Uh, let me ask you a question. So, I only try to ask this a question of everybody that's kind of doing analytics in the real world. Um, and I try. I probably ask this question a hundred times on Wharton Moneyball, and now I get to ask you. As you think about the effectiveness you can have in your job in helping the Yankees succeed, I would say, do you have? If you could improve in one of three areas, which would it be? Would you have better data? Would you have better math and models? Or would you have a better ability to impact the team because more people kind of having a willingness to listen to what you say? Do you have a data problem, a math problem, or a management problem? Which of the three would you improve? He means data opportunity, models opportunity, or management opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I'm just uh, strive to be the best of everything. So, yeah, I mean, definitely want to continue uh, pushing forward in all, all three areas. I think we... We're in point now. We have uh, we have really great data set coming now from uh, from uh, the Stackhouse in every major league park. Um, but there's still more things that can be tracked. So uh, more data is uh, is important. But I'd say better um, the data is not 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 valuable unless you do something with it. So the the kind of the better math with it 
um, is uh, is uh, is probably trumps that. So, Michael, I'm sure there are lots of listeners here that would like to, at some point, follow in your footsteps. Um, Can you give us a sense of the variety of backgrounds of people that sit on your team? Like, obviously, you've mentioned you have an undergraduate degree in math. I assume you probably have some people that have degrees in computer science, maybe some in psychology, maybe. I, I don't know. Could you give us a sense of the set of degrees at which someone could then have a career in analytics for a sports team like the Yankees? Yeah, I mean, it can, it can be it can be a variety there, but I mean, kind of that that stat background is is key is key. So, I and mean, we have uh, in our department we have a we range from a PhD in in in, in statistics to uh, to undergraduate degrees in in various fields. Um, uh, and I, th- I think really whatever your degree is, if you want to go into that analysis career, the uh, really doing as much uh, as much getting the statistical background as as you can and and. Uh, and uh, kind of t- taking the right course, getting the right experience, and uh, and then doing doing getting some hands-on work and with with jobs and really applying uh, the techniques and statistical models. Uh, um, yeah, that's just the key. Mike, let me ask you a management problem. You started out as an analyst, and now you're running the analytics group. What have you found about that transition? And what what in what way do you think you're a better manager of that group than you used to be? What are you working on, not as an analyst, but as a as a leader of analysts? Yeah, so I, you know, when I started uh, started with the uh, the Yankees, I, you know, I was I was a department of one, so I was really just um, uh, doing uh, really everything on, on my own. We had the opportunity to just grow grow the department a lot since then, um, and uh, and then when I, when I was the uh, director of quantitative analysis, uh, and it was it, it wasn't there was there was little you could, you. you there's a little time for really doing doing any sort of research on on your own. Um, it was it was a matter of really trying to um, kind of make sure that kind of everyone in the department was uh, was doing that kind of getting the most out of each of them, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and uh, kind of really stay on top of every every different project we have. Um, and now uh, now David Grabner is our director of quantitative analysis, and he has, and uh, he, he's got to stay on top of the uh, of the uh, projects of kind of. Each of the uh, each of the each of the analysts in the in the department and uh, kind of what their methodology they're using the results they're getting any improvements they can be making and kind of working with each of them. So, Mike, I'm going to ask you. A, maybe I don't know if maybe it's my final question. But it's a strange question. Is it harder to improve the team given you're on track to win 106 games this year than it is to improve a team that's projected to win 80 or 81 games? Like, do you know? At some point, there's only so many areas you can improve. So, do you find it challenging right now, given how? good the Yankees are and how they've built a huge amount through their prospect system that at some point, you know, the analytics can only improve so much when you're already in the right tail of the distribution. Yeah, I mean, there are, yeah, and there are, there are limited ways we can we can improve the roster as, as it is right now. Um, so, yeah, when obviously a weaker team, there there are more spots on the roster that you can uh, you can try and improve on. Um, and, uh and a kind of better team with with fewer holes that there 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 are there are not those those spots easily easily upgradable spots on on the roster where you can kind of make a big upgrade. Um, yeah, I mean you could obviously have a 106 win projected team that has some big hole in their roster, and uh, upgrading that one hole could be a big win pro- projection upgrade. But um, for the most part, it's it's a lot easier when they're and multiple holes you can choose from, and uh, and uh, you can play on a bigger portion of the available players. 
Michael, last question for you. Where where do you think the field is going in baseball? We we look it's it's a little bit easier to look at basketball or soccer or even football who've done so little on on spatial as like a whole frontier and it's just kind of rich and thick and relatively unknown and that's pretty clear where those three sports have the most to gain. It's less obvious, at least to me, where the where the real frontier is in baseball. Where do you think the greatest gains are to be had on the analytics front in baseball? Where do you think we're going to see that go over the next, you know, three, four, five years? Yeah, it'd probably be uh, kind of more in, in these coming years on the uh, in injury injury side, uh, um, injury injury prevention, injury prediction, uh, and uh, and combining that with uh, kind of measurements on the uh, on the biomechanics side uh, of, of pitching, hitting, um, and uh, I kind of see that as kind of a next wave. Terrific. Um, super, super valuable. If any progress there would be, I would think, so valuable, both to the organizations and to the players. Um, it would be great to see that. Michael Fishman, thank you for the time this morning. Very much enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. That was Michael Fishman, assistant GM and vice president of the New York Yankees. He heads their, He used to head their analytics department. And he's been there as he was he was analyst number one for the Yankees back in 2005. We are through three quarters of the show. We still have one quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning. This Wednesday morning, we are graced by Daniel Bruno on the soundboard, sound engineer. I've been away for a few weeks, and in the intervening time, Danielle's come back. Delighted to have Danielle on the soundboard. That means associate producer Dion Simpkins is uh, in the back eating bonbons, I think. He ain't got any other work to do. Danielle's doing his work for him. But we will be here for one more half hour doing that work. You can join us. one 844 7866 or email us businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Is, B, is email going away? No one uses email anymore? Not really. We need to give them a text line so people can text us questions. Matt, we need your mobile. We'll give your mobile out so people text questions. You can add us, Twitter, want the social media world, at WMoneyBall. You can get us that way. We are rolling into the last half hour. We are open lines this half hour. We still have some sports to talk about we haven't talked about yet because there are some things going on in the world other than. But before we leave baseball, give me the update. I, You know, basically, I stay in touch with the baseball world by coming in here and talking to you people. And that means I'm not in touch with the baseball world. I look down at the standings, and the Sox have a five-game, four-and-a-half-game Yeah, so I mean, I, I feel like the American League is kind of, uh, I mean, at least as far as, like, you know, surprises is is less compelling league this year. I mean, basically, everybody's winning who we thought we would. We thought it would be between the Yankees and Red Sox for the East. We thought Cleveland would win the West, uh, Central, and we thought Houston would win the West, and that's just all kind of happening. Um, I think the really exciting stuff's happening in the NL, where there's, I mean, the NL East especially, yeah. the Phillies and the Braves are, compi- are, are, are are head-to-head for the division. And five and a half games b- above the Nats. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that was, that was certainly a race that in, we did not think was going to happen. Were they the two worst teams in baseball last year? Who? The Phillies, Phillies and the Braves? Braves? There's probably maybe one or two worst. No, but no I mean, they, they weren't. Were, they were but, certainly predicted to be two of the worst teams in 
uh, yeah. Or I mean, no, no, maybe the Phillies th- were predicted as a 500 yeah, team this right. year. That's what, but I they certainly were not. I know the Phillies too. won somewhere around 70 games. They yeah. were not 70, 75. They weren't that horrible a team. Okay. The thing I was going to talk they about. They were certainly here, not predicted to be a good team. Though. Before we leave the AL, by the way, just before, so I was going to, I told you guys, yeah. the Yankees um, have a good chance, a really good chance to set a record this year. What was that? Well, they're not going to set. They're not going to set the record because of the wild card. But if we had gone back in time, the Yankees are on right now on pace to win 106 games, pace, yeah. and lose their division by six games. Now, in the olden days, as you know, they wouldn't have made the playoffs. The record for the most wins to never make the playoffs was the 1993 Giants, who won 103 games. They went 103 and 59. There was no wild card back then. The Braves won their division at 104. Wow. So I was just going to project the Yankees have a really good chance of winning 105 games <laughs> and not winning their division and getting knocked out in one game. There's no, I mean, as you yeah, know, it's a coin right. flip. Maybe they're 52 48 because they have home field in that game. And they'll be playing a team we think would have less than 105 yeah. wins. But they may win 105. I, it's what I predicted, by the way. Matt has the tape on the over under. I predicted more than 210 wins. For the two of them combined, yeah. For the Yankees and Red Sox, I'm feeling good about that right now. Right now, they're on a pace to 218. But I'm gonna say it again: the Yankees may win 105 games, end up five games back in the division, and get in a one-game wild card and get knocked out. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> sounds no, like a dream scenario to me. But uh, <laughs> no, I'm just saying. Yeah, it, what it shows yeah, it you, is. what it shows you is, is that this is an unprecedented year, just like the Yankees and the Red Sox are really high. We have two teams. I don't ever remember seeing this. We have two teams. I talked about this two weeks ago on Wharton Moneyball, the Orioles and the Royals, that are on pace to win less than 50 games. Yeah, terrible. Less terrible. than 50. The yeah. record's four. How quickly have the real wheels come off the Royals, by the way, in the last yeah. couple years? Yeah. I mean, that is just really... But I'm saying, well, this is the good thing about, I mean, baseball. Here's what we know. If we take the average team, they'll win 500. I mean, it'll be 500, right? Someone wins, someone loses each game. So someone, if the Yankees and the Red Sox are sucking up all the wins, yeah. someone has to be sucking up so, all the losses. But, so the fact is we're going to end up with, yeah. we could end up with two teams that are better than two and one, better than two and one, basically 108 wins, right yeah. right in there, 108 and 54, right around there. And we have, may have two teams that are essentially one and three, mm. 40 and 120. So by, it's by remarkable. The way, by the way, there's another team floating around the American League that's right in that same territory that you're ignoring. Which is the Astros. The Astros are projected to win 105. Yeah. I know. Yeah. All of a sudden, the Astros really turned it on. Remember, they were at basically 500 for a while, and then they started playing 750 ball. We thank you. Thanks for bringing the up. Best run we differential may, of any right. Team. We may end up with three teams with somewhere in the neighborhood of 108 wins. Yeah. So three teams in the same league with the over 100 wins. I can't imagine that has happened very often. Two has happened because I'm I'm staring yeah. at them that that didn't make the playoffs. But three. But also, it's I understand 100 is impressive. I'm talking about above 105. Yeah. Right. Clear. I'm yeah. talking about three teams that all have a really good chance of ending up with more than 105 wins. That's well, I remarkable. Guess th- thank you, Kansas City Royals and Baltimore Orioles, for donating all those wins to, well, a, to, that, to the cause. That's the way it is. So a b- big event over the weekend, Wimbledon catches most people's attention. We had Serena in the finals. We did not have the men's final people were hoping for, but the 
but it's an interesting story, Djokovic's comeback. So I'm curious to get your reaction to Wimbledon. Well, so a, a couple things. One is, um, I, I still have said this, I think Serena Williams is the greatest athlete I've ever seen. I think she's the greatest tennis player I know I've ever seen. I lived through the Navratilova Everett era. I lived through the Steffi Graf era. I watched fe- women's tennis. I'm a big fan of the sport. For many years, I thought it was much more interesting than men's tennis because, you know, guys booming 140-mile-an-hour serves. Um you know, Serena played phenomenally well and not phenomenally well in the finals. And so, but at some point we have to start saying, is a 36, 37-year-old Serena Williams, how guaranteed is she to beat a, you know, at some point we have to say Angelique Kerber, she's now won three majors, she's beaten Serena in two major finals. Maybe Angelique Kerber, she's not Serena Williams, no one's saying that, but maybe a great 29-year-old is greater than an immortal 36-year-old. And that can happen. Of course, it's going to happen. No, no, I know. It's going to happen. And maybe now, I would say maybe Serena's at a point where as long as she doesn't play someone great, she will win. And when she plays someone that's great, maybe she has a 50-50 chance of winning. Well, right. Do you think Serena is at the current in her current configuration is a 50-50 chance. I think she's against I could probably name two or three hard-hitting power players yeah. where she's probably if she's bigger than 50-50 and I I don't ever want to put her out. She's at best 60-40. She's no longer this 80-20 90-10 yeah. against four or five players. And let's also remember, if she plays Angelique Kerber possibly people say she plays her way into the tournament. Forget that. That's nonsense. Age curves hit us all. That's her seventh match. She has to be more fatigued because of her age and that's and that what it takes out of her. I would if you told me she was playing someone like that in the first or second round, I'd give her much higher odds than playing someone like that later on because a twenty nine year old's if you'd like depreciation, I'll use the you know horse racing during the race. The the thirty six year old has to decelerate faster. Yeah, yeah. Just has to. So you, the way you talk about Serena's performance in the final raised a question for me I haven't thought about quite before but wouldn't it be possible in tennis to model a a player's performance relative to in most sports it's difficult to say did that team play well or poorly or did the other team play really well in tennis it feels like you can actually separate that a little bit you could you could model Serena independent of her opposition to some extent on, you know, did she unforced errors and winners, for example, mm-hmm. like the ratio of those things as a yeah. first approximation to say yep. where in her distribution, setting aside opposition. So did to what extent did Kerber have an easier outing on Saturday because Serena was off of her? Good? Well, the thing I've noticed is Serena doesn't I know this is going to is going to sound like an oxymoron. She doesn't cause as many unforced errors as she used to. And so the last couple matches I saw her play, her opponents had an, an extraordinarily lowish number of unforced errors. Now, I understand by definition, isn't an, if an error is forced, then it's not unforced. But tennis has bad ways of measuring, not right. great ways of measuring it. So you maybe explain to somebody who's not as sophisticated in tennis that, like, you know, what types of things can you do to increase the number of unforced errors nice. in your opposition? Yes. Yeah. Nice. So nice. a couple things you can do. Um, one is by... Having amazing court movement and getting every ball back, you force the other person to go for the lines and go for depth. Because you know any short ball, any ball in the middle, it's gone. But by the quick aside, I'm guessing that analysis is informed also by watching your sons play squash for years. Well, let me just say, squash is a sport. You don't win squash. You lose squash. 
I've become to that uh, convinced of that. And what happens is when you, it is true when my son plays someone better, it's not so much that the other player is hitting winners all over the court. It's more so that my son has to go for winners to win any points. So interesting. And you're going to hit what's called yeah. the tin. There's a you know you, you got to hit it above a certain line. He will tin an extraordinarily large number of balls, but he has to. I see. You can't because he. You know why? If there's so just a second order forcing or something correct, like that. And that you know. Exactly. If you want to call it that, and that's what I've seen in Serena's game. She's not forcing the people to go for as many lines as they used to, as much depth as they used to, as much hard hitting because. Maybe she's half a step slower, or she hits it two mile an hour slower, which means they have more time to get to the ball. Then on the men's side, let me just flip quickly to the men's side. At some point, we're going to have to recognize that, you know, I understand Federer's got 20 majors. Nothing, no, you can't take anything away from him. Nadal's got 17, certainly can't take anything away from him. Sampras has got 14, although people say he played in the watered-down era. Djokovic has 13, and he's got a winning record. Against Federer, yeah. Nadal, and Murray. A winning record. So it's at some point, it's not far away, you're going to have to put Djokovic in that conversation with Nadal and Federer. How old is he? He's 31, Nadal's 32, and Federer's 36. I don't think Federer's turned 37 yet. I might be wrong. He might be 36. But he's he's essentially the Murray, Nadal, uh, Murray, Nadal and uh, Djokovic they're essentially within a year each other of age. They're basically that cohort of okay. 31, 32 years old. And by the way, you notice the other two people that advanced in the men's were Kevin Anderson and John Isner. They're 32 and 33. Where are the like, young guys? Well, where that's, are the young guys? That's the question. That's the question. So wh- where are all the great young players? How, how old com- is Del Patro, by the way? Del Patro, I believe, is 30 now. Same era. So what about, yeah, essentially what the about, same era. What about Nadal taking Djokovic as long as he did on a surface that is so friendly to Djokovic and not friendly to Nadal? So it was. Ex- let me just say. Let me say the extraordinarily positive thing, and then the negative thing from watching the match with Nadal. So number one is he's extraordinarily competitive against one of the greatest grass court players of all time, Djokovic, and that's not his best surface. Mm-hmm. So from that point of view, if you're Nadal, you have to say, I was right there. I'm as good as anybody on grass. Why can't I come back and win Wimbledon next year? Here's the bad the bad thing. He had, I think it was five, it might be more, set points to, in when, remember, they right. played the match over two days. Yeah, yeah. He had three, four, or five set points to go up two sets to one. Okay. He didn't win the set. In the match where he lost to Djokovic, 8-6 in the fifth set, at 6-all, I think it was, he had, I think it was love 40. He was going to go up 7-6 and serve for the match. He couldn't break him. So on the one hand, he's got to be encouraged by the overall play. On the disappointing part, on every key point of that match, he could. He wasn't quite as good as the other player, right? And that has to mean because at the end of the day, with tennis, it's going to come down to that small set of points when you're at that elite level. And he just couldn't quite get over the top. So if I were him, I'd be encouraged in the macro sense, mm-hmm. but extraordinarily disappointed in the micro sense. But we're going to have to start talking about in the greatest of all time. Yeah, we're going to have to put Djokovic in there very soon. Give him a, give him a couple more years. It's coming. Okay. One of the great things about July is that we have these wonderful tournaments in Great Britain. So just moving a little further north and. Changing sports, we have the Open this weekend, 
and it's at Carnoustie, one of the one of the one of the great ones, one of the challenging ones. The big reports out of Carnoustie this week are it's been a dry summer apparently up there, so everything's rock hard, and it's supposed to be windy. So it's the toughest. Oh, big wind, 40, 40 mile an hour winds on Thursday and Friday. Most Amazing. people think that Carnoustie is the toughest of the open courses. And now you've got some of the toughest conditions I've heard about at the at the British Open in a few years. So what are you paying attention to? What are you thinking about as we roll in? This is a fun one again because you get to watch golf in the morning, basically. Yeah. And they, they just they produce it differently in over there than they do over here. So what are you thinking? And it about sounds like it'll be British watching Open? golf like as it as it's played on pavement. Yeah, um, this, with high winds. So well, that should be interesting. There's a lot of trouble at Carnoustie. So you can't roll very far before you're left or right. But and, that's what that's one of the things. You could make an argument that the long hitters have a disadvantage because they may hit it through yeah, the fairway yeah. or it rolls so far it rolls into one of these fairway bunkers. It, now, it, and shouldn't, then, it shouldn't be a disadvantage because they can always club down. No, no. But that's – so that's – this is – It's less the, than Well, advantage. I mean less it reduces the their no, usual advantage. That's, that's well, right. Well, that's right. Let me just say, normally I would agree with you, and maybe I do. Let me just give a counterpoint to that. What a lot of people have said is when you take someone that's used to hitting at 340 off the tee with a driver, three wood, whatever, and now you force them to dial back, you're asking them to play a game they're not used to. And so it's not just – some people would argue, and I've read a lot of articles about this lately. It's not just about taking away the advantage of the longer hitters. You're saying – all right, so Shane Jensen never hits the ball 340 off the two. He's a great iron player, etc. You know, you may be better at that game than the longer hitter is at that game. So you're asking you're asking yeah. the longer hitter to play a game that there are other people that they have to be great at that because yeah. that's not their advantage. So I'm interested in that. I also always compute, so how many players do you have to go down to get to it to be 50-50? So I'll take a certain number of players and then you get the Use, rest of the field. Using betting odds. Using betting odds. And so you're basically at around 10 players. You're so the top 10 players are are 50-50 to one somebody from the top 10. That is correct. Of the 10 favorites are most are equally likely as the rest of the field. That is correct. And the highest odds just to give you an example is the number 1 player in the world right now, Dustin Johnson. He's 12 to 1. So if you use the Adi Weiner formula, 12 to 1 means you take one over one plus twelve, that puts you at around seven point seven percent. So you're somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, you have Justin Rose, Ricky Fowler, and Roy McElroy who are at sixteen to one. So they're a little over five percent. By the way, you have and I, I think this is I don't know you have Tiger Woods who's roughly at twenty five to one to win, which means they're saying he's roughly four to five times. Or two, sorry, three times the average golfer because there's you know there's roughly a hundred and something up. That seems skeptical. way. I'm skeptical, skeptical about that yeah. twenty five to one. But you basically, if I could take the the ten golfers I could name, I could just say their names doesn't matter, or the field. Who are you taking? The ten. I'll take Dustin Johnson, Justin Rose, Ricky Fowler, Rory McIlroy, Jordan Spieth, Justin Thomas, Brooks Kepka, and Jason Day, and you can have the field. Who are you taking? I'll take the field in a heartbeat. You've told me that the odds are roughly even, but yeah. but I think these weather conditions yeah. increase so much variability, in, introduce so much variability. Yeah, I, really I, I guess I, I would take that too. I I, th- I think if we, if we really are sort of seeing like a greater amount of variability due to like the conditions, then so you want uh, to normally take the field. I would say yes, but let me tie it to something. I just I'm going to try to make a connection between golf and tennis, which you just talked about. When it comes down to the end. 
Some of these ten players, I believe, are going to be there, and they'll have a greater chance to finish. <laughs> you are so you're so all about that. No, momentum no, and psychology. No, no, this isn't momentum. No, 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 this isn't momentum. It is psychology. This isn't There's no, no. psychology no, no. Well, to it. But I wasn't referring to momentum. I was referring to we have people who have proven records to be I, able I, to I, close out tournaments. This isn't psychology or momentum. This is let's see. I'll give you a statistic. We don't know Conditional that. On be- no, I know these players have greater... Tr- the reason why they have higher odds is because they've either won majors or they perform better, let's say even conditional on them having a good tournament. That's what you need because no, I'm be- saying conditional- better, better players are going to win more tournaments regardless of whether they can close. No, no, what I'm saying is if we looked, and this I, I will have this data for you for next Wednesday, conditional on these players, let's say, having a good tournament, I'll define that as being in the top 20. What percentage of the time do they win compared to the field? I think these players no. will be at a higher number. No. I do. No. All right. Sure. Well, then. Dis- disagree with you on that. Let me, let me. It's a good question, though. It's an empirical question. It's, it's, it's a tough one, empirically. It's a good. It, you, it might take an Eric Bradler to sort that. Let me give you a little insight because my buddy Rufus Peabody, who I like to say is the best golf better in the world, is feeling generous this morning and has some picks for us. So his favorite is Justin Rose, though he acknowledges conditions. My God, it's going to be hard to forecast. Across the board, his most likely to win. So setting aside odds, most likely to win. Rose, DJ, McElroy, Kopka, and Rom. No one's talking about John Rom. He's like the number five player in the world. Um, he says Tommy Fleetwood, 37 to 1. He doesn't like his chances as much. Jordan Spieth, not big on Jordan Spieth. Don't go betting Jordan Spieth, according to Rufus. Tiger. The market has Tiger at 25 to 1. Rufus makes him 44 to 1. Sleeper pick. He has a sleeper pick for you. A young Argentinian. I'm going to abuse his name probably. Emiliano Grillo. 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 Emiliano Grillo. Uh, he's something like 125 to 1 in the market. Rufus has him at like half that, 58 to 1. Betfair has him at 180. You can get you can get him at 180. Rufus likes him at at 58. And then as British golfers, if you want some local flavor, Andy Sullivan. And then he also likes Tyrell Hatton. Tyrell Hatton at 43 to 1 if you want another long shot. That is the British Open. We've got three minutes to go and we've got one final segment. It's Wharton Moneyball's Over Under. Eric Bradley, you want to bring us home on this one? Sure. Uh, we'll do Over Under here. Uh, let's do the following. Let's Since we talked a lot about baseball, Let's do the following. Uh, let's take World Series wins for the Red Sox, Yankees, and Astros a half. So, in other words, for the, for you to go over, you'd have to say the Red Sox, Yankees, or Astros are winning the World Series. If you're going under, it's anybody else but the Red Sox, Yankees, and Astros. So I'll start with Shane Jensen. Will the Yankees, Red Sox, or Astros, or one of the three of them, win the World Series? Are you going over or under a half? Um, I guess I'll go under. Only because I think it's 50-50 once they get to the World Series, right? And basically... You, you've you used the law of compound probability, which means yeah. they at best have a 50% chance to win the World Series if they get there, and there's no certainty that one of the three of exactly. them will there get there. Exactly. There is technically another team that they'll play along the way. <laughs> Not just technically. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, I'll go under. I'm, okay. a, I'm under as well on the same logic. Okay. Here's one that builds on something we just talked about, which is tennis. Um how many years, uh, our producer Matt Datz has told us it's been 15 consecutive years that the big four have won Wimbledon, Federer, Nadal, Murray, and Djokovic, over under three and a half years Before until someone, someone else <laughs> wins Wimbledon. So it's not Federer, Nadal, Murray, or Djokovic. It's got to be some young guy, right? I mean, I, I mean, where where are the 20-year-olds in well, tennis, we, in, we had, in men's tennis? We had... We had 
two other guys in the semis no. this time. No, but that, those were they're over thirty. John Isner and Kevin Anderson are both thirty two and thirty three. Oh, yeah, though I mean they technically. I'm, I'm asking for the you, the, you said the, someone yeah. outside the. Big no, no, four. right, right, no, no, no. I understand, but they're not young. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I hear you. So Shane, what do you think? Over under three and a half. I'm going to go question. under, man. Great I think question. somebody's going to break I'm through. I'm with you too. Forget this. This is too much of a story. Short the narrative. There's yeah. someone that's going to. These guys are going to get old eventually. Yeah, and I'm going over because I would go under. I would go under, but <laughs> there's four of them, so that's the yeah. thing. I don't. Uh, it's not like Djokovic. Djokovic could do it three years in a row. Yeah. Well, if I said this, if I just replace this with the French, what are you doing? Oh, then it's. I oh. Mean, then, well, yeah. I mean, then Nadal's winning that until he's like 80 or something. There we go. <laughs> All right, guys, we have to cut that segment short because we're out of time. It has been another. Two hours, another Wharton Moneyball. We do this every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10. Thanks from the whole team here. We had Audie for the first half hour. We had Shane, Eric, and Cade for the rest of the show. We had Matty Datz running the whole thing back there and Daniel Bruno back on the board as our sound engineer. Thank you guys for listening. We're going to be back here next week. We hope you'll join us. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.